Hey, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott and I spent the first series of this podcast laying out the basic toolkit that is essential to making conscious evolution a possibility, which is the entire premise behind the Accidental Gods project. This podcast, the website, and the membership portal that lies behind it. We spent the second series finding people who were using these tools in ways that could inspire us to change. And now in the third season, we're beginning to lay out a vision for where we could go for that more beautiful future that Charles Eisenstein speaks of, that our hearts know is possible. And in that regard, this week is the second part of the conversation with Mickey Kashtan, one of the most inspiring of the non-violent communication practitioners in the world, I think. And Mickey has visions not only of who we could be, but of where we could go, of how we could structure the world differently so that we can become the more beautiful people that our hearts know is possible. So in the first podcast, we laid down the principles of what it takes to be those people. And in this podcast, we're beginning to lay out that vision, a sense of a framework, of a structure of how we get from here to there, and of how there looks in the world where our needs are met, all of our needs, so that we're not in that constant sense of scarcity and separation and powerlessness. So people of the podcast, please welcome Mickey Kashtan for the second time. So Mickey, welcome back to Accidental Gods for the second time. Thank you so much for agreeing to do a second call because this feels like a huge, huge turning point in our journey as Accidental Gods into understanding where we've been and where we might go. So where we really hooked into last time, one of several, was that our economic system is absolutely predicated on scarcity and that the wounding of our system is that scarcity, our separation from ourselves, from the more than human world and each other, and our powerlessness. So what I'd like to do now, because I know that you have concepts of where we might go that are more developed than anybody else that I've ever heard, I would like us to look in this podcast at the potential places we could move to if we were able to heal those wounds of scarcity, separation and powerlessness, and then the the ways, some of the ways that we might get there. So over to you. Great. So I want to start by saying that I'm in the process of writing a series of blog posts about what the coronavirus is making possible. I know it's a big calamity, but the globality of the situation and the lockdown and the pause and a variety of things are creating a kind of crisis that allows us to see certain things that otherwise we might not see, both individually and collectively. Um, so it's a it's a very ambitious series of nine or ten posts. I'm now working on the fourth. The second one is talking about that we are now able to see the market economy is not able to attend to needs. 
that became absolutely clear from the fact that in order to care for needs in this kind of extreme situation, governments and communities are the only entities that are able to do it. And it's not like I particularly think that governments are great at it, but governments at least can. The market is unable to care for needs because needs don't exist in the market. The fact that I have a need gives me no power. I only have power when I actually have resources that I could exchange with someone so that I can get what I need to attend to my own needs. And that, again, it's not something that is like a radical statement. Every economist would agree with me that what counts in the market is not the need itself. It's what they call effective demand. Effective demand is my capacity to command attention to my needs because I can pay for them or I can give something for them. So the exchange economy eliminates the power of needs. And so then uh, needs become a liability Hmm. rather than what they are, which is the life force living within us, moving towards whatever is next. That's what needs are. When we are born, if we have not been damaged in utero, we are born with the expectation that making our needs known is enough. Hmm. We are expecting and assuming that when an adult or someone else around us will hear our expression of need, hear or see or intuit, they will come to us and give it. And there's a high degree of that that does happen, or else none of us would survive infancy. But it is not the normal thing that happens. Sooner or later, in the societies that we live in, we are told that what we want is not okay. Hmm. Yeah. And so jump forward, who knows how long, how far, into a world of the future. In the world of the future, needs have power. Okay. And we actually all know that that is so. Because we all know that movement of the heart when you see another's need. We know it, we feel it. It continues suppressed underneath, under the cracks. It's there. Yeah. And it came out during the lockdown. Exactly. We know the power of solidarity. We are beings that are responsive to need. And part of it, um, I mentioned last time Genevieve Vaughan with the maternal gift economy. And if you think about what is the quintessential quality of mothering, it's an awareness of and orienting towards another's needs. This, she claims, and I agree with her, is what is unique about our species, is this capacity to orient in this way. It's not like other animals are not able to do it, but they do it primarily in relation to the young. And we can do it in relation to each other as adults. Mm. And we do. You know, if I give you and listeners a tiny exercise of thinking of a time when you gave someone something with zero expectation to get anything back, you just gave it out of pure, sheer generosity. 
the experience that people have, I, if I say to a group of people and I ask them to close their eyes, everybody gets a smile on their face. It's an experience of pleasure. Why would it be pleasure if we are the selfish creatures that modern economics uh, frames us to be? So this is one of the main ingredients of the world of the future. Needs are proclaimed, celebrated, engaged with, listened to, elaborated, inquired into, put on the table. And we spoke last time, but I would like to just dig a little bit deeper into that, about the needs beneath the needs, because yes, in the world around us at the moment, you know, a million people went into pubs last night because they felt they needed to go into the pub and drink. And I had conversations with the people who weren't going into the pubs last night, whose partners had been sober and at home for three months, and they just lost them again. And and utterly divergent needs there. And it seems to me that if we had been able to address the needs beneath the needs, we might not need pubs at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it there's a difference between what we think we need, particularly the dopamine-driven needs that have been created by mm-hmm. the advertising industries, yeah. and the actual needs that often are unmet by our current culture. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yes. I'll tell you a story. Uh, My sister had once an introductory evening on nonviolent communication where she said this very same thing that I said here in the previous conversation, that everything that we do is an attempt to meet needs. Just an introductory evening, two hours. The next day she gets a call from a guy who was at the event and told her what happened on his way home. He took out a cigarette, was about to light it, and he said, wait a minute, me taking out the cigarette is an attempt to meet a need. What needs am I trying to meet by lighting a cigarette? After two hours of an introductory event, and he thought about it and he named to himself what the needs were, which I don't think was part of the story as it came to me. And then came the crucial moment, and he said, I have better ways to attend to those needs than to kill myself with tobacco smoke. And he quit smoking. Wow. Wow. That's a powerful two-hour introduction. Yes. That's an unusual occurrence, but that in principle is there. Because what happens when you live in scarcity, separation, and powerlessness, if we analyze it, what that does to our relationship with our needs... If I am in scarcity mode, I'm always afraid my needs are not going to be met. So that makes me very attached to particular strategies. Because if I know a strategy that appears to me like it's going to meet my needs, then I will be attached to it because that's one way I know that maybe my needs will be met. And if I let go of this, heaven forbid, what will happen? Hmm. So that's one thing that imposes itself. Second one, separation. The overwhelming majority of our needs require other people to meet them. Hmm. If we are separate, then we feel even more this kind of like existential fear. Do I matter? Will anyone care enough to give me what I need? And if not, cling, attach to whatever strategy appears like I can. And the third, the powerlessness if I don't have this, I am powerless to create something else that will care for my needs. So it's almost like the three-tier thing 
is it all pushes us in the direction of attachment and addiction. Right. So the process of asking myself, you know, simple question, what's really important to me right now? Hmm. What is really important? I know I want the cigarette, the bottle, the sex, whatever it is, the chocolate. I know I want it. What is really important in this moment? Why do I want this? If I have this, what will it give me? They're all the same question, but they're different entryways. And it is a swift kind of like wake-up call from autopilot. That question, what's really important to me? That is one of the most liberating inner processes that I can go. So I have a question in that. So we've been talking a lot on this podcast about polyvagal theory and how, so we have the sympathetic fight and flight, but we have also got the two branches of the parasympathetic. And and one of those is also triggered by our sense of being unsafe, a, a sense of danger or a sense of potential threat to life. And and there's a hierarchy of those. And under threat to life, it's almost impossible to think because everything else, our, our entire amygdaloid system is, is moving towards fight or flight. Next step down, the perception of danger. It's, it's slightly easier to think, but we're still on high alert. And it seems to me that somehow within where we're heading, as a society, we exist in this constant perception of danger because, as you said, we've got this kind of toxic feedback loop of scarcity, separation, powerlessness that each feeds into the other. In order to bring ourselves to a point where we have the capacity to reflect and ask, what do I need? What do we need as a culture? Because it seems to me that it's if we're in this sort of cultural nervous breakdown at the moment, we need individually to reflect and we need culturally to reflect. Yeah. Do you have an idea? First of all, does this model sit with you? And second, yeah. do you have a concept of how individually and as a culture we can find the space to give ourselves the capacity of reflection that allows that degree of self-awareness or, or the other way around? Uh, so I, I want to first say a big caveat. I don't believe that systemic change will happen from a large number of individuals changing their consciousness. I think that pathway is too slow. Okay. So how's it going to happen? Uh, I don't know, but I, I think I want to put that on, on a back burner for a moment. Okay. That's the entire premise of Accidental Gods, so we do need to get to that. Okay. Um, but yes. Okay. So that said... There's essentially three places to practice. One is before some so-called danger event happens. Second is within it. And third is after it. Hmm. The easiest practice is after. And this is a practice that um, a late colleague of mine called post herself you know, like you have a rehearsal for a show, a post-rehearsal. Oh, okay, post-rehearsal. Now I can spell rehearsal. Let me write that down. Yes. It's like a, it's like a redo. Yeah. You revisit the situation, ask yourself all the reflective questions. In the moment when you are not actually in danger, it's over. You know it's over. 
and you ask yourself what you would have done if you had the awareness of what your needs are, what might be the needs of the other parties to the situation, and what could be a path forward that would care for everyone. That's the integrative path. Hmm. A path forward that cares for everyone. And you just note it. You might even role play it with a friend. That gives you those practices in my experience and in the experience of many that told me independently of each other a similar thing, that it feels physical. Mm. It feels like it's rewiring the brain. Because it is. So that's one practice. You do it rigorously, it rewires your brain. Another practice is before. Mm. And the practice of before, uh, okay, so the practice of after, what it does is it uh, expands the range of options that are available to you in the moment. Because... um, What happens under conditions of fight and flight is that the range of options available to us almost collapses. It's like there's just two options. But if your body and brain begin to become aware that there are other options, they will over time become more available in the moment. So that's options for action. The second is the before. And that one changes what we perceive as danger. So I personally, I'm not a neuroscientist, but um, I have talked with some and it seems like there's some validity to this way of framing it. I think of trauma as a nervous system predisposition to interpret certain things as danger, as threat. Because from my understanding, we're born with only three things code as danger, loud immediate noises, Creepy, crawly sensations on the skin and falling from a high place. Not cold or hunger? No, not not danger in that way, because cold or hunger, you know, we are relationally connected. So we will ask for something and it will be given to us, apparently. Okay. If that is the case, then everything else that we code as danger is learned. And if it's learned, it means that it involves even the minutest minimal uh, neocortex evaluation. Danger or not danger? Oh, it's danger. Poof, let's move to limbic system. It's not hijacked. I don't believe in this theory of hijacking. I think it is control that passes logically and biologically. Hey, limbic system, you're the best suited to deal with danger. So we're stepping out of the way. It's yours now. That's a very slow process. No, it's not. It's a split second. Just danger, not danger before any further evaluation. Danger, not danger. And if it get codes as danger, poof, limbic system, split, split, split second. Okay, we'll discuss the neuroscience of that another time. But yes, okay. And then if we are able to do some work ahead of time, if we know that a difficult situation is coming and we imagine what might happen and we think about the other people and what they might do and how we might react, we are going to soften the coding of that as danger, and we are going to come into a situation less likely to interpret it as danger. Okay. The third practice is practicing in the moment. That is the most difficult. Mm. And people give up on changing their fight, flight, freeze reactions because it's almost impossible to change them in the moment. And if you don't think about the before and the after, you think there's nothing you can do. 
Because in the moment, your amygdala is actually working so much faster than your cerebral cortex. Yeah. If over time, through practice, you can train yourself to breathe, you can train yourself to move in certain ways that will detrance you. If you, um, you know, I think we talked about the woman who, who yes, was, yeah. So that man was in a trance. Okay. So when she asks him what time it is, okay, I, I mentioned it, he has to look elsewhere. Just the change of physical motion already breaks the trance. So if we can remember to do that, like for example, I've read once in a book, if you're angry, sit down. Okay. Because the anger is like you want to stand up and scream. But if you sit down, you change something already. Sometimes things are very simple. That is... One thing. Other thing is I have an inkling that we actually have more choice than we tell ourselves. And here's an imaginary story. You just got really triggered about something and you're sitting in your home in this trigger and upset and uh, all of that. There's a knock on the door and it's your neighbor. Please come help me out. Uh, You know, my son fell into a well. Instantly, you're not triggered. You go help Uh, your neighbor, meaning something within you recognizes that there's the possibility of exiting that circuit. And if that possibility exists for a neighbor whose son fell into a well, then that possibility can be cultivated. And I may or may not know what the practice is, but knowing that it's humanly possible is an essential ingredient. This is a big part of how I train myself, is by recognizing that something is possible. And if it's possible, There's no reason not to be able to learn to do it. Mm. Yes, definitely. Okay, so I'm aware time is moving on. And I'd really like to to expand more deeply on this vision of a future where our needs are are recognized to be interconnected and are met. Because leaving aside whether a critical mass works or not, my feeling is that we have more chance of reaching a future if we can feel how it would feel. Yes. So can can you build us a more of a word picture yes. of how this future feels and looks and works? Okay. So I was mentioning last time that the infrastructure is already in place. We just have to pull money out of it. So for example, let's say if we if you look at food, we can record patterns of consumption that will uh, allow us to know where you know where food needs to go and have some idea of how much food to grow now with that in mind let's say there's a food center what used to be a supermarket is now a food center and you go to the food center and there is a certain amount of whatever you want that you can take no questions asked because that's a baseline that is available for everyone. You just take it. If that is not enough for you and you want more, you go to another place where all the people who want more go to. And then you work it out. You work it out on the basis of need. If there is enough, if let's say there's more for 10 people and 10 people go there, then the 10 people just take whatever they want. If there is less, then you work out what are the real needs underneath and where does it make sense to transfer what is available 
It's not like you will always get what you want, but you will always somehow be part of figuring it out if there isn't enough. And these are presumably local community yes. food centres yes. so that you know the people that you're negotiating with. They're not the strangers who turned up from a, a nearby city that you've never seen. Yeah. And it depends on the thing. I mean, I haven't worked out every last detail, but there may be things that are not available locally where they would need to come from another place. So they're, they're, I think people are super afraid of negotiating things based on need because of how habituated we are to our needs not counting. And our sense of separation. Yeah. If we have money, then we don't have to prove to anyone what our need is. So I, I heard that in the state of Oregon, there was a ballot initiative to pass... Uh, socialized healthcare, which in the US, you cannot use the term socialized healthcare. You have to call it single payer. Hmm. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, Possibly. so that's what it is. And the people who put the ballot initiative out worked out the details, including thinking what to do when there's procedures or, or substances for which there isn't enough to everyone. And they worked out algorithms for how to allocate them based on need. Hmm. And they were criticized for rationing healthcare, huh. as if healthcare isn't rationed now. It's just that now it's rationed by money. Your ability to pay. And that doesn't count. Right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. We are hypnotized into the, the neoliberal system. But equally, I know that in Brazil, where they had experiments in participatory budgeting, yes, then the vote was to increase the taxes because the people who were voting understood that they could decide how to allocate the money that was pooled, which is what government at its most basic is. We elect from amongst us a group of people to organise the distribution of our money in a way that benefits everybody. And if that's what governments actually did, instead of being wholly corrupt, you know, nepotistic kleptocracies, then nobody would have any problem with governance. So I would imagine in our future, we have a form of governance that is designed such that it does exactly what it says on the tin. It, it allocates the resources that are common in a way that is to the benefit of everyone. Yes? So I am glad you're making a distinction between governance and government, because government is a form of governance, mm. but it is only one particular form. Governance is a function that is necessary for every entity of humans mm. to work out how they're going to run their affairs. Yeah. So in our ideal future, or an, a version of an ideal future, how do you see governance? I see it working, and, and I actually worked out that piece. I have a fully worked out model of global governance. Which I will share in the show notes if you're happy for me to do that. Oh, I'm super happy for you to do that. Uh, that has basically three components. One component is for routine, normal, everyday type decisions that um, most, as, as much as possible, are decided as locally as possible. And right now, this would be almost impossible because the resources necessary for people to live and thrive are not locally based. Hmm. We are all dependent on large institutions that are far away for the very basic means of our subsistence. 
that if if you relocalize things, then for a neighborhood to make decisions about things is not an empty proposition. It's it's a real thing. And then every decision that involves, let's say, two neighborhoods or five neighborhoods will be decided by people elected unanimously. It is possible. This is part of the deal. It's possible to make unanimous decisions. It's possible to make unanimous elections, open unanimous elections. The mechanisms exist. Consensus is not so hard to come by when you have... um, people who have a common problem to solve that really affects them, they have a stake in the matter and where they have the authority to implement a decision. It's much easier to collaborate than to collaborate on abstract ideas. That's when we fight. Can I ask a question? Sure, all the just, time. Just from personal experience. So I live in a collective of two. There's me and my wife. Mm-hmm. And we have a home, which we have in common. And I'm guessing probably our our ways of discussing or sorting issues are are not as good as they could be. We try our hardest. And for a lot of our home, the walls are white Mm -hmm. because my version of the colours I would like to live in and her version of the colours she'd like to live in are are radically different. I have a keynote, which is clarity and Faith's. I can't remember what her keynote was, but to me, it translated as muddy, which is not what she said. and and therefore we end up with white because because there is no consensus and that's with two of us. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing if it were a survival issue, we'd probably come to a broader consensus quicker. But how do we reach consensus among large groups of people where there are radically different internal modalities? So you actually reached consensus, and the consensus is white. Yeah, I'm not sure either of us loves white though. Yeah, but the point is not that people get what their preference is. The point is that you can come up with a solution that everyone is willing to accept. Shifting from preference to willingness is a world of difference. In other words, and, and similarly, this is one of the core principles of this future world, is I call it the principle of willingness. And it basically says only that gets done for which there's someone who is willing to do it. And not necessarily joyfully ecstatic about it. You know, there's all these programs that promise you, you know, tap into your life's passion and then you will find a way to make that your profession or whatever. Mm. And every time I see something like this, I ask myself, and who is going to collect the garbage? If you haven't solved the garbage problem, then you are essentially recreating a class society Mm. of masters and slaves where some people do the dirty work so that other people can pursue their passion. So the, the solution to this is, I am assuming that there will never be enough people who will want to collect the garbage every day of their life as their work, mm. enough to collect all the garbage of everyone. But I am completely convinced that there will always be enough people who are willing from time to time to collect garbage. Okay. It doesn't have to be everyone. Just enough people who are willing to do it from time to time will take care of the garbage problem. Then there are no garbage collectors. There's garbage collection that happens on a rotation basis by those who are willing. So I'm not talking about a utopia. 
I'm not talking about nirvana. I'm not talking about a heaven mm. in which every, everything, you just put your feet up and everything is as you want it. And there is no garbage ever. Yeah, I'm talking about the real possibility of working out solutions that everybody recognizes, that given all the needs that are on the table, given the resources that we have available, given the impacts that we know are going to happen if we do it this way or that way, this is the best solution for all of us. Okay. There's, uh, there's a story that I love of where this woman that I know did a process using the decision-making process that I created of, of working out with a bank branch their seating arrangements. They had to reconfigure the seating arrangements. And she was from the regional office and her boss told her, you know, this is going to be a goat rodeo if you're going to try to um, involve them in this. Don't do it. Just decide and tell them. And she said, mm, no, I'm going to get to do it with them. She told them, here are the non-negotiables. I would like you to present proposals that address these non-negotiables and these are some of the other needs that I think we have and what other needs do you think collected the needs from everyone. People submitted proposals, then everybody got together, they evaluated the proposals relative to the set of criteria that they had created and one proposal clearly was the best one. And that proposal had a senior person who had been in the bank for 20 years taking himself out of an office with a closed door into a cubicle, saying, this is the best for everyone. Wow. Okay. I was in a company where a salesman gave back one third of his commission of a big contract because he saw the collaborative process that went into deciding how to work with the contract. Right. And when I wrote an article for the New York Times and included this piece, the editor asked me to take it out. And I said, why? It's true. She said, it's over the top. What? Yes. And that's when I understood, that's when I understood that oh. the media reinforces this homo economicus yeah. version of humanity yeah. because that's over the top. But if he stole money from the company, that would not be over the top. Yeah. Or if he even just hung on to all of his commission, the fear underlying that yeah. is, is huge. Yeah. But on the other hand, on a recent podcast with Della Duncan, we were discussing a proposal put forward by the Post-Growth Institute of a, a way of adjusting our current economic system so that every business is not for profit. Yeah. Um, and that, I, I'm reading the the book behind that at the moment, and it I haven't found any holes in it yet. It's It's one of the few ways I have seen of taking the current system and adjusting it that doesn't require total rewiring, revamp, you know, crash the system and start again. This is, okay, we have the current system. We just change it so there isn't a profit motive. Everybody has a, a, a lower pay rate and an upper pay rate with a very narrow ratio within the company. Mm -hmm. And anything that you make beyond that, beyond obvious operating costs, goes into your local community and you can you can all have a say in where it goes and what happens to it but it's being spread and taking away the that profit motive i'm sure your editor at the new york times would also ask you to take it out yeah but i, I have another question which is did you take it out yes or did she take it out i mean there, there are complexities she says you know if it's true then get proof 
And this was already several years after I was no longer with that company. I didn't have the contact information. It was not possible to go and track it. Right. What you could have done, though, was put it in and go, this happened. I have been asked to get proof. If you, the reader, can prove this, please let me know and we'll have a second article. Yeah, I think that, you know... Using the crowdsourcing t- capacity of the New York Times. Never mind. Okay, yes. She would not have let it in. She would not have let it in. And, you know, she is the one with the power. And it, it was a difficult choice because I thought even a partial powerful story about collaboration mm. is better than none. Yeah, because they have the power to just not run the article at all. Yes. Okay. So governance. We were at governance. Yes, we were. I want to press the point just a little bit more, which is there's an illusion that we have, unconscious illusion, that if we just fight long enough, then our preference will win the day. Hmm. That illusion is within the world of separation. If we take seriously that, you know, here's what's important to all of us, and we're looking for a solution that works works for all of us, that we all can sign on to, those conditions create sufficient constraints for powerful creative breakthroughs to come to uh, emerge. And, and I've seen that happen time and again in many situations. So how would it work? You've got an election coming up in the US. Mm-hmm. If you were to design the electoral process... I would not have elections of okay. this kind. All right. So how how would it look instead? If we were okay. to wave a wand and go, okay, clearly this doesn't work, how would it be better? So in the ultimate global governance model that I would envision, it's all local to global, mm-hmm. meaning decisions are made locally. Those things that require coordination with other regions are done at a different level by people elected, selected from within the local circle, and this goes on concentric. However, if you are going to a next, an inner level circle, you're still a member of your local circle. So you remain accountable to your neighborhood, even if you end up being part of the global circle. And as I remember from reading your document, if you get kicked out at any level, you're kicked out of all of them. Yes, so that, that helps you to stay honest. Yes, there is complete local accountability. And so that is for decisions that are just about coordination. Then there's a second mechanism when there are decisions that require, you know, kind of like study and learn of information, where it's not apparent what the resources are, it's not apparent what the impacts are, it's not apparent what the needs are. You need to actually investigate and learn this. Those can be done through a process called sortition, hmm. which is basically selecting a random sample of people from the affected population and trusting the decision to them. This is how the citizens' assemblies proposed by XR would work. Exactly. And then there's also a third process, which is multi-stakeholder circles, which is particularly suited for situations that are low trust situations and or require specific forms of expertise because in a sortition people come into the process as themselves 
not as their roles. So they may have information that comes from their role, but it's not their role. It's their being, their body that is in the circle. But in a multi-stakeholder circle, you come in as your role. So I am CEO of a regenerative farming co-op, say. Yeah. As opposed to just being me. Yeah. Okay. I have this dream that, um, you know, kind of like, give me CEOs of energy corporations, climate scientists, climate activists, you know, a random sample of frontline communities and a smattering of whatever else. Put them in a room. Let me facilitate them. And the charges come up with a list of policy recommendations that you are all willing to endorse. Hmm. Give me that. We instantly change the world. Why has that not happened yet, Mickey? Because there's so many. I mean, COP26 was supposed to be in Glasgow in October, and it's going to be next October, November, whatever. And there, that group of people, if you were able to walk in there and go, let's make this happen. I would. If they let me facilitate, I'm quite confident that I could facilitate something different from what they've done. By the way, Paris was based on a process from the Global South, a collaborative process, very rigorous collaborative process. The name just escaped me, but I read about it. I was trying to understand how it was that every single country signed on it. Mm. And, and there was a process native to South Africa that was used within uh, the uh, Paris Accord. That resulted in the Paris Accord. In, in the Global Climate Accord, yes. Yeah. I, I wish I remembered, but I'm having a senior moment. It'll come back. But the process, it's an actual process that is used in the Global South. Okay. So we what we need is for Glasgow to go to, to use it, because the problem with Paris is that everybody signed up to it and nobody's actually doing it. Yes, that's that's a separate a separate issue from the issue of we can make decisions that all of us agree to. Okay. It's possible. Yeah. We don't have to fight. We don't have to have parties. You know, look at, um, there are local experiments. I don't know if you've heard of what is happening in Froome. Yes, the, the flat pack democracy, but the, the listeners might not have. So if you'd like to describe that, that would be fantastic. Yes, please. Um, so, a group of citizens decided that party politics is not a way to run a town, that a way to run a town is to solve practical problems that affect everyone with as much involvement with every, from everyone as possible, not through positions and platforms, but through looking at each, at each situation. And gradually over some years, they came to a point where the entire city council is based on local independent people that are elected because they are committed to supporting the town in solving whatever problems it has. One of the things that is one of the secrets that I don't know if people know is that their meetings are facilitated. They have outside facilitators working at their meetings. So that helps because then there's a process that holds everyone towards decisions that work for everyone. Yeah. And and the basis on which they were elected, as I understand it, is that they they said, we come from a, a wide variety of political viewpoints. They were the local transition group. But these are the 
principles by which we will make decisions. And that was their their pitch yeah. on being elected was this is how we will go about making decisions. We can't promise you what we'll do because yeah. we don't know what problems will come up. But but these principles will be used in right. making decisions. And this is the facilitation. I mean, it sounded once I began to get my head around nonviolent communication that that's what those are the principles that they were essentially using. And it's worked. The first time around, I think there were 18 places on the town council. First time they got nine. So it was just the balance. And four years later, when the elections were reheld, they swept the board. Yeah, and and we need that at every town in the UK. Yeah. So so the key is, I want to lift up for what you said. The key is process, mm. not position. Yeah. You can start from whatever the positions are. If you have good process, you will reach the most practical possible solution to the problem that affects everyone. Yeah. You just need to include in the process those who are impacted, those who have specific relevant information or expertise to offer, and those who hold keys to resources that if they are not convinced, they won't release the resources. Right. Yeah. This is why when we designed the global governance system, we designed it on, in part on the basis of a principle that is very intense. The principle says it has to work for the most powerful and the least powerful. Right. And in the end, it has to eradicate those opposing power structures. There has Everybody has to come to a point where power is more equitable, surely. That, that in the end, is the point. Yes, but you don't go to decide that. You start okay. with where you are. You start okay. with where you are. And this is where we talked about, you know, like how do we actually get from here to there? Yes, Right. So um, I told you I've worked out two and a half scenarios. So I want to I want to describe all three of them be, before we end. Yes. One of them is this global governance, and it's kind of like it bootstraps uh, uh, in this in this form. You. Uh, you will need some connections, but it's not too hard to get connections to. The people who are kind of like our moral authority. There's a group called the elders. Mm-hmm. There are a number of people who, when they say something, people po- follow, people listen. You know, Desmond Tutu. Jimmy Carter. There's, there are not many of them, though, mind you. We're trying to put together something called Live Earth, which is like Live Aid, but for the Earth. And we're trying to think of who could we invite. So the Pope, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu. Finding people who have the authority and the voice and who are considered neutral enough that enough people will listen to them is quite hard, actually. Because I'm, I'm going, well, Greta Thunberg, and they're going, well, you've just lost the entire you know, polarity of one side of a political culture war will not turn up if she's there. It's an interesting process. Anyway, carry on. I don't want to. So you, you, you work this out and get a group of people and they issue a call for a global sortition. Okay. And the global sortition has the task of naming the top five problems that have to be solved. Just that. Okay. And then for each of these problems, you summon the correct multi-stakeholder group. And that group issues recommendations to all the world's governments. The moral authority of that is overwhelming. If you get the resources together to initiate this process, 
So can we ask, because this might be the single most important thing that we could do, if we were invited to do this now, mm-hmm. how would we find a group that the Chinese and the Russians and the Brazilians and America and Britain and France and Germany, you know, that 173 nations in the world would listen to? Can you stretch your head around a group? So remember, there are three phases. First, okay. there is the call for the sortition. Yeah. It's just a call for a sortition. Just enough for governments to give their census data. That's not okay. too hard to get. Then you get a sortition. Okay. 5,000 people from around the world. Okay. And their task is to decide what are the five most pressing problems. Just now, imagine 5,000 people all agree on this. Okay. These are the five mo- top problems. And we have the, the psychotechnologies to bring 5,000 people to a unanimous agreement. You think that's possible? Not difficult. Not okay. difficult. Not difficult. Okay. Then for each problem, you summon the people who are clear stakeholders. So if China, Brazil, and the U.S. are stakeholders, they will each send representatives. So they will be part of solving the problem. Okay. It's just that they won't be alone in solving the problem. Okay. Yep. Right now they are alone in solving the problem. They think they just they own the world, but they will be required to sit together with those who are impacted by the choices they make, with those who have expertise that they may not have, okay. and to sit together and work it out. Okay. Once they work it out, the moral authority of that is based already on it being an organic thing that emerges from process. Okay. It's not imposed on anyone. Can't be. Right. So that's one scenario. That's a linear scenario. Okay. The other scenario is fictional. Um, And I worked it out as a plausible thing, not as a thing that will happen. And it amazes me that essentially what I worked out had a Greta Thunberg in it without before she uh, reached the map, uh, except that mine was a girl in Nigeria mm-hmm. that created um, an animated uh, video clip that depicted um, basically apocalypse and then invited all the world's children. Hmm to come together and work it out, saying, you know, we can't wait for adults, they're not going to solve it for us, and created a plan. And the plan is very simple, is to first map the whole world into ecoregions, which are not quite the same as bioregions because it also includes human activity. Um, So an ecoregion has a kind of cohesion within it that makes sense both biologically and culturally and socially. So you work out, the, the uh, North America has been mapped into ecoregions. Uh, the rest of the okay. world, last I, le- I checked, hasn't. But it's possible so we can do that. Okay. Yeah, done. Then, second task is to map, in, take an inventory with each, within each of the ecoregions of what are the local needs and what are the local resources. The third part is to work out a plan of, you know, first you 
localize the resources to address the local needs first. Because right now we live in a world where things are grown here and go elsewhere first before they come back here to be eaten. Uh, so you you yeah. Yeah. cancel out needs and resources locally. And then you have a picture, essentially, of what each region needs from other regions and what each region can give to other regions. Okay. Okay, of the surplus available. And, and in the story, there was initially a breakdown when the high school kids of the global north kept not getting it that the global south was not actually going to be available to continue to sustain their current lifestyle. And the global south uh, high schoolers went, yippee, we don't have to sustain the global north anymore at cost to ourselves. So they created a plan that sustain themselves and not the global north. And then the thing almost broke down in this imaginary story until a Palestinian girl and an Israeli girl worked it out, figuring out that you cannot solve one trauma by creating another, mm. that you have to create transitional plans that care for the scarcity and fear of the privileged. You cannot impose too much because if you impose too much, um, things break down, and then there is, you know, you know, like uh, Nazi Germany is a reaction to too much imposition at, in Versailles, in part, not only, but in part. And once they figured out all of this, they went on a strike, which again goes back to Greta. It just wasn't on the same mm. on the scale that I had envisioned. The strike was very simple: we're not going back to school. Any child in the world, okay, until. Basically, you accept our plan. And this is a movement for the 100%, not the 99%. Every single one of you, including the CEOs, including heads of states that have been uh, torturing people, everyone is part of the plan. And after a week, the world joined mm. them and that, that was the transition. So that's, that's the second scenario. Wow. Okay. Uh, and it, okay. it was almost made into a movie, but things fell apart as they tend to be when you're doing visionary stuff. And the third was a radio, started from a radio program. It's not fully worked out, but it's a radio program where listeners are invited to call in to solve problems, to solve local problems. Hmm. Right. And and so essentially you 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 do essentially kind of like um ad hoc citizen councils. And you solve a problem, you bring it to the city council. Solve another problem, you bring it to the city council. Then another town hears about it and it moves around until it catches the whole world. But I didn't work out the transition. No, it sounds like what's happening in Rojava, though. They're, yes. that, they're pretty much working with that. Rojava is the best thing happening in the world right now, as far as I know. But that's why everybody seems to want to bomb it to pieces. Yeah. But yes, yes, we can talk about that in another podcast, because I'm quite aware of the time. Okay, so we have these three, and I'm already thinking of people that I can put you in touch with that might be able to make some of these happen. Yes. Because there are people who want to help and don't know what to do. And there are people who have the ideas and and need help with those with power to make them happen. Because as you said, if you could get to COP26 in Glasgow and they gave you the capacity to facilitate, the world would be a different place. So the final, just before we close, 
I would like a thought experiment of what would it take within the next six months if you and I were given free reign to do what we need to do, what would be the order of activity and of connecting people? What would we do the first 10 acts in order to bring together what we need to happen? And we can pick from all three of those scenarios or something I, new. I, I confess that I, I would like to stop advertising, but I don't think we would have the power to do that. That would be an impact of something else that we did rather than a primary yes. action. I think. Yeah, I think, I think the thing to do is to bring people together to work out their problems with good process. Mm. So one of the key things would yeah. be to create what a colleague of mine and I called facilitation camps, training large numbers of people to be able to support others. That will become a bottleneck very quickly. If we actually move to collaborative processes, you need right. people who can lead them because they don't, our collaboration muscles are atrophied. After right. 7,000 years, they are atrophied. Okay. Can we do that online, given that a lot of people are still in semi-lockdown? Is that something that we could set up as an online process or do you need to be in the room? Yes, there is. There is an online process. So I, I will give you the resource for people who want to learn and serve. That that exists. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the, the link. Brilliant. And then we need to, because I'm, I'm thinking of just our government and the apparent lack of emotional intelligence and the lack, they don't want to be facilitated because they don't either don't know facilitation is possible or they don't believe it would make a difference. I'm imagining contacting my MP who happens to be chair of the Environment Committee, who's gone through an extraordinary journey in the last 10 years. I, I sat in a room and listened to him saying basically the climate change wasn't happening 10 years ago. And this week, he wrote a letter to the Chancellor mm -hmm. going, there is no time, we have to act, we have to be aiming for zero carbon by 2030 in line with our Paris agreements, which is not enough, but it's an astonishing journey. And I'm imagining writing to him and saying, look, we're offering help with facilitation at COP26. Mm -hmm. You are deeply involved in the making COP26 happen. How can we bring facilitation into the room? And he... yes. He wouldn't take it seriously because he doesn't know what it is and he doesn't know what it can do. So how do we open up to the people who currently hold the reins of power the sense that there are other ways of doing things that could work? I think if we could get one group somewhere to be willing to be filmed while being facilitated and you show what is possible and share that, then that opens doors. Right. That's my next task then. Right. Great. Okay, we can we can make this happen. That's doable, especially in, in this world where everybody's living online at the moment. Yes. Those who are not involved in essential services. Right. Okay, thank you. And you're writing these 10 blog posts, which I imagine will become another book when they're all done, because that sounds like a book length One of project. them is actually uh, in a book. One of them became a chapter in a book that is coming out uh, in Bristol okay. University Press called Life After COVID-19. That's coming out in about a month, I think. Okay. And we'll be able to put links to that. All right. So we can link to that. And then we can link mm -hmm. to, your, to the place where the other blogs are up. Is there anything in closing 
Is there anything else that it would be useful for everybody to know? Yes, something that people can do individually starting right now is to train themselves to give without receiving and to receive without giving. And the second one is harder. Right. But any time I refuse to receive, I block the flow. If I can think of it like this, let's restore the flow. Okay, give without receiving, receive without giving. And you're right, that's that's a change in mindset. It's nothing more than that, but it's huge. Right, Mickey, thank you so much. That That gives everybody enough to change the whole world. So that's it for another week. And now we do have a sense of what we need to do and where we need to go. I will be exploring the ways that we could bring together the 5,000 people chosen by sortition. But in the meantime, give without receiving, receive without giving. See how that changes your world. And so, enormous thanks to Mickey for offering the pathways to change, for her capacity to envision the future in ways that are different, and for the ability to share it with such clarity. For those who want to learn more, I will put as many links as I possibly can in the show notes, which are on the podcast page of our website, which is accidentalgods.life, and there will be a transcript there of this podcast and all the previous podcasts. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, thanks, as always, to Caro C for the sound production and for the music at the head and foot of the podcast. Thanks to my partner, Faith Tilleray, for being the other half of the creative team that is Accidental Gods, and for designing the website. If you want to see what she's created, that address again is accidentalgods.life. You'll find the show notes there, the other podcasts, the visualizations and meditations in the resources section, and the Accidental Gods membership portal, which is a structured training designed to go beyond giving without receiving and receiving without giving. It's designed to help us to make the connections that we really need to make to each other, to ourselves, and to the web of life with integrity and authenticity and grounding so that we can be what we need to be in the world that needs to become. So if you know of anyone who would like to be active in bringing about that more beautiful world that our hearts know is possible, please do send them the link. In the meantime, that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.